Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back to another episode. We've made it! We have spent the last couple of weeks discussing the reasons a new constitution was needed and how the Federalists convinced others to make a treasonous decision to completely undermine the Articles of Confederation. And lastly, we spent some time going over the compromises and arguments that came up during the convention. Before we get into how the public voted in favor of ratification, let's look at the actual document itself. What does the Constitution say? What does it do? In order to do this document justice, this will go a little longer than my normal episodes. I made an editorial judgment that one longer episode on the Constitution would be better served than two or three shorter episodes. I'm going to go over each article and their respective sections. So grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. After a long, hot, dramatic summer filled with secret debates, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention walked away having achieved a momentous feat, a draft of a working Republican form of government that, if ratified, would replace the Articles of Confederation and start the course on a new central government. But unlike the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution was not an expression of ideas or grievances, but outlined the nuts and bolts of how the framers thought a representative government should function. There are just seven articles to the original Constitution. While there have been a series of amendments since its ratification, at its presentation to the nation, there were no amendments. The Bill of Rights would come later, at the suggestion of the states. There are three types of powers found within the Constitution. Exclusive, shared, and checking. Exclusive powers are those that are granted to just one branch of government, for example, the authority to coin money is exclusive to the legislative branch. Shared powers is power that is shared between at least two branches, such as the federal and state court system. And lastly, checking powers are those that provide for a check from one branch to another, such as the president being commander-in-chief to the armed forces, but Congress having the power to declare war. The first three articles focus on how the federal government functions and outline the power and limitations of those branches. Article 1 describes the legislative branch and is by far the largest part of the Constitution with 10 sections outlining things like the qualifications to serve in the House or Senate, duration of that service, and the process and purpose of the census, among other things. Section 1 vests all legislative power in Congress and stipulates there shall be a two-house or bicameral legislature. Section 2 states in order to serve in the House, the candidate must be 25 years old, a citizen of the U.S. for at least seven years, and a resident of the state from which they are elected. Also in Section 2 is the information about the census and how to determine representative distribution. Originally, one representative was appointed for every 30,000 residents. This was changed to a formula in 1929 after Congress capped the House of Representatives to 435 members. Every 10 years, districts are redrawn based on population counts, and states can either gain, maintain, or lose seats. 
For example, in the 2000 census, California, Florida, and Texas all gained seats, while Pennsylvania lost. It is Section 2 that held the text of the Three-Fifths Compromise, which was later invalidated with the passage of the 14th Amendment. Section 3 outlines the qualifications for Senate. As a United States Senator, an individual must be 30 years old, be a citizen for at least nine years, and also be elected from the state in which they reside. Senators were elected by their state legislature until 1914 when the 17th Amendment moved for direct popular election. Under Section 3, the Vice President is named as President of the Senate but has no vote except in the event of a tie. And when the Veep is not presiding, the Senate elects a President pro tem, who acts as the presiding officer of the Senate and is fourth in line to the presidency. The process of impeachment is also covered, specifying the House of Representatives has the sole power to impeach, and the Senate is responsible for holding the trial and determining guilt. For presidential impeachments, Article 1 stipulates the Chief Justice shall be the presiding officer and that a conviction requires two-thirds of members present. The penalty for impeachment is removal from and disqualification to hold any future office in the United States. The Constitution was clear there was to be no legal ramifications because, quote, the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law, end quote. All of that in just the first three sections of Article 1. You still with me? Section 4 leaves the manner of congressional elections up to the states, which is why you have so many variations on voting processes from state to state and why some states allow for things like same-day registration and others do not. Congress was given the ability to alter the state's rules on voting and has done so in the past with things like the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Section 5 provides that the House and Senate each get to decide if the election of their members is legitimate and requires both houses to have a number of individuals present in order to conduct business, known as a quorum. Both houses must keep a public journal of the proceedings, including how members voted. Lastly, Section 5 allows for each chamber to create their own rules for acceptable behavior, conducting business, and expelling other members. Section 6 allows for payment of our representatives and grants immunity to members from civil prosecution for what they say and do in a legislative capacity. This may explain why our federal representatives are sometimes loose with the truth. No real consequence for lying. It should be noted this immunity does not protect against criminal acts. To reinforce the separation of powers, Section 6 also prohibits representatives from serving in any other federal office. This is why former Senator Kamala Harris had to resign before taking her oath of office on January 20th. Elected in 2016, Vice President Harris still had two years left in her six-year term as senator and was prohibited from taking the office of vice president while still serving in another role. Section 7 outlines the taxing authority of the House, as well as outlines how bills become law. Just Google Schoolhouse Rock, I'm Just a Bill. It's a great retro take. I'm just a bill, just a little old bill. It's very cool. Go check it out. Section 8 provides the most detail in terms of congressional powers. It vested Congress with the ability to levy and collect taxes, pay debts, and provide for the common defense, and to make all laws, quote, necessary and proper, end quote, for carrying out their list of enumerated or explicit powers. 
Section 9 of the Constitution is where we find the slavery hot potato solution. I mean the clause stipulating Congress shall make no federal laws regarding the importation of human beings for 20 years. This section also specifies protections to those who have been accused of crimes, including the right of habeas corpus or the right to challenge your charge in court, shall not be suspended except for during times of rebellion or invasion, and that no laws shall be passed aimed at an individual or group of persons. Section 9 also states there will be no ex post facto laws, meaning a law that makes something criminal after someone has already done the act. Think of it like being arrested for drinking on Tuesday when it wasn't illegal until Wednesday. Congress was initially banned from administering a direct capitation, or tax, per Section 9, but that was invalidated with the 16th Amendment, which allowed for a federal income tax. Section 9 also outlines what is commonly referred to as the Emoluments Clause, which prohibits any federal official from accepting any title of nobility or gift from a foreign nation. Lastly, Section 10 outlines the limitations on state power by preventing states from entering into any treaties with foreign nations, coining their own money, and providing any title of nobility. All of that in Article 1. Whew. Moving along to Article 2, we have the powers of the executive and how one becomes president. Section 1 stipulates the president and vice president will serve four-year terms, however provided for no cap on how many they could serve. This remained in place until the 22nd Amendment was passed after Franklin Delano Roosevelt's tenure, making him the longest-serving president in history. Section 1 also established the Electoral College and the line of succession should the president or vice president be unable to serve. As I mentioned last week, the electors were left up to the states to decide and given two votes each, with the only limitation being the electors could not be serving in any other federal role. State legislatures decide how their electors vote, whether they follow the popular vote in their state or, like Maine, they get a vote for each congressional district they win. Once the electors meet and cast their votes, their votes are sealed and sent to Congress to open and count. To be eligible for president, a candidate must be at least 35 years old, a naturally born citizen, and a resident of the country for at least 14 years. Section 1 also provided for a line of succession in a precursor to the 25th Amendment, stipulating Congress would select who would become president in the event the president and vice president were unable to serve. Section 2 outlines the power of the president, including being the head of the executive branch, commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and the ability to pardon individuals for federal crimes. The president is also granted the authority to appoint federal officials such as ambassadors and judges with the advice and consent of Congress. Section 3 requires the president to provide a State of the Union, or an update as to the state of the country. Fun fact, while Washington and Adams presented their statements in person to a joint session of Congress, this was not a continued tradition, and it wasn't until Woodrow Wilson in 1913 that the in-person speechifying recommenced. I learned that little tidbit thanks to the presidency of the United States podcast. If you are into presidential history, I would suggest you head on over and take a listen. He has some great facts and trivia, and the research is top-notch. Getting back, Section 4 outlines the punishment of impeachment conviction for the president, vice president, or any other federal officer, removal from office, as well as what crimes they may be charged for, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Moving along to Article 3, we have our judicial powers. 
Section 1 establishes the federal courts and mandates one Supreme Court who is considered the final say in all federal matters. It also provides that federal judges serve for life so as to maintain their impartiality. Section 2 outlines the type of cases the federal courts will hear, such as disputes between the states, and outlines that the Supreme Court is considered the appellate court, or the court of appeal, in most federal cases. The exception is cases involving an ambassador or state, where the Supreme Court is the first court of record. Section 3 provides the definition for the only crime specifically mentioned in the Constitution, treason. Treason is defined as levying war against any of the states or, in quote, adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort, end quote. Article 4 spends time with the states, specifying that each state must respect the laws and statutes of other states, even when it contradicts their local law. For example, if a couple legally married in California, the state of Wyoming would have to recognize that marriage, even if the couple would be ineligible to marry under Wyoming law. Section 2 stipulates no resident of one state can be discriminated against in another. It also contained the Fugitive Slave Clause, which was modified with the passage of the 13th Amendment. Section 3 outlines the process of admitting new states and prohibits states from creating their own state within its border, meaning California can't make Los Angeles its own state. Lastly, Section 4 provides for the protection from invasion to every state and mandates each state have a Republican government as opposed to a dictatorship or a monarchy. Article 5 of the Constitution outlines the amendment process. There are two options to proposing an amendment, either through Congress or through state legislatures. When it originates from Congress, two-thirds of the House and Senate must agree before sending it to the states. The state legislatures also require two-thirds agreement. However, that only establishes a constitutional convention to make an edit and has not yet happened in our history. For an amendment to pass and be ratified as part of the Constitution, a three-fourths majority of states have to approve it. You might be wondering, well then, how do you repeal an amendment? You don't. There is no provision provided within the Constitution for repealing an amendment. In order to repeal an amendment, you have to propose and ratify a new amendment that repeals the old one. This has been done before with prohibition. The 18th Amendment started Prohibition, and the 21st Amendment ended it. It's not as easy as some would postulate, on television or on internet memes, but I digress. Article 6 provides when state and federal laws are in disagreement, the federal law is the winner. Additionally, Article 6 requires all civil officers to take an oath to support the Constitution, but prohibits any religious test for serving in a federal role. And finally, Article 7 outlines the ratification process and required nine states to ratify the Constitution for it to become the law of the land. Only those who ratified it would be bound by its provisions. This was a pretty big gamble, considering there was a real fear states like Rhode Island and New York would fail to ratify. So, there you have it, folks. The United States Constitution, article by article. Before I wrap up, there are a few more notes I'd like to mention. As provided in Article 5, the Constitution was not meant to be a stagnant document. If it was supposed to be the end-all for Republican government, the Founding Fathers would not have included a way to amend, or make changes, to it. For example, I mentioned how the 13th Amendment invalidated the Fugitive Slave Clause. Even Thomas Jefferson felt there should be the ability to update the Constitution from time to time, writing, quote, 
Each generation is as independent as the one preceding. It has then a right to choose for itself the form of government it believes most promotive of its own happiness, consequently to accommodate to the circumstances in which it finds itself. That a solemn opportunity of doing this every 19 or 20 years should be provided by the Constitution so that it may be handed on with periodical repairs from generation to generation. End quote. And though we do not rewrite the Constitution every few decades, we have successfully added 27 amendments since its passage and ratification in 1788, making it a living and adaptable form of government. And as a history nerd, I think that's pretty dang cool. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.